Glad to be with you this morning. You're obviously open to John 8, which is a good place to be. It's sometimes hard for us living now with all of our modern conveniences to appreciate how much different life is today, really, than at any other time in human history. If you think about something as simple as our access to light and the ease with which we can just flip a switch on or turn a flashlight on, go outside, it's quite a bit different. Even just a couple of hundred years ago, in the late 1700s, the early 1800s, they did have street lights, but of course they were not powered by electricity. They shone because they were burning either coal, which doesn't seem like a good idea, or whale oil, which I'm sure made the streets have this delightful odor. Neither of them were particularly efficient or cheap. It cost quite a bit of money to go send out a whaling ship and find a whale and cut it up and bring it back and get the oil out of it. During that time, if you had to go outside at night, you had to use a torch with fire on the top of it, or you had to use a lantern powered by oil. Neither one was all that bright, and there was no way you were going to make a long journey in the darkness. In our modern day, things are never really all that dark. And this is really a dramatic change in how humans have lived throughout history. We turn our lights on in our houses at night and just continue on with what we're doing, our work, our play, whatever it might be. This is really a dramatic change. There's always light in the house. There's always a street light on. Here, you can even see the glow of the city, of the freeway. It gives a little bit of light where you can go outside and it's not completely dark. It's hard for us today to appreciate the value of light in the darkness because we don't really ever experience deep darkness where you can't see well at all. Darkness that makes it difficult to even move around or to accomplish any sort of task in the darkness. Now, Human beings have lived with a sensation of darkness and without much access to light for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And it's interesting that the Old Testament uses this image of light over and over again in that cultural context to describe the way that God's word and his presence come to us and the way that his word and his presence are the pathway to life and to wisdom. Listen to just one example of this in Psalm 36. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. We're able to see things. We have delight because of the light that God provides through his presence and through his word. And it's no wonder that the Apostle John picks up this image of light in the first chapter of his gospel. John 1, verses 4 and 5 and verse 9. In him, speaking of the Word who was with God and the Word who was, was God before creation, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. But it's also true in light of that 
light coming into the world, John 3 and verse 19 says this, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. So in our passage today, Jesus is going to use this image of light for himself for a couple of reasons. One, because it's used in the Old Testament. And I think he's picking up on the way in which this has described God's revelation of life and wisdom through his word. But he's also using this image of light because it speaks directly into what was happening during the Feast of Booths. So there's kind of a two-pronged approach here. Just like he spoke of himself as the living water, because there was a ritual during the Feast of Booths of a pouring out, a ceremonial pouring out of water every day at the altar in the temple. Now he's going to use another image that capitalizes on something that happened during the Feast of Booths, and he's going to use this to describe himself and his ministry. So here's what we're going to see today in this section of John 8. Three blessings that we see clearly because of the light that Jesus brings. Three blessings that we see clearly because of the light that Jesus brings. And the first one of these is the knowledge of the Father. Now, I know that's a bit abstract, but we will get there and we will clarify why this is so significant. But as we get there, we've got to lay the groundwork in verse 12 of chapter 8. So why don't you look there with me? It starts with this word, again, Jesus spoke to them saying. Why does it say again? Well, some of you probably noticed that we skipped a portion of what is in your Bible here, John 7:53 through 8:11. And in your bulletin today, there's a little insert if you did not get it. I think there are a few left on the back table. If you can't find one, I will email the insert to you. But there's an insert explaining why we're skipping that story and why the story of the woman caught in adultery, I don't think, and lots of others don't think, was a part of the original Gospel of John. It was added later. In your Bible, you'll probably notice that it's in brackets or there's a footnote stating that it was not in the earliest manuscripts. And you can read that insert. I tried to give a very clear explanation of how we get our Bibles and why certain passages are in them, the reliability of Scripture, and why this one was not in the original text. And if anything, this should confirm our trust in the Word of God and not undermine it. Because we have all the evidence at our disposal and everyone has been so careful to make sure that the original reading is the one that we have in our Bibles to the point where when they are confident that something wasn't in the original, they still put it in there with a footnote just to make sure that we've got everything that was possibly a part of it at one point. So all of that, you can read about that. But one of the other reasons I don't think it's a part of the original is because it disrupts the flow of this passage right? So you get to chapter 8 and verse 12, and it says again, and it's referring back to what happened in chapter 7. Look back to, it's referring back to what happened at the Feast of Booths on the last day of the feast when Jesus stood up and cried out that if anyone was thirsty, they should come to him because he's the living water. Look back to verse 40, 
right after he says that, and the people are responding to him. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. And they had all these questions and this discussion about his statement. And then all the way through verse 44, verses 40 to 44 of chapter 7, the people are discussing this, and it takes place in the temple where Jesus was teaching, and he made this statement. Now look at chapter 7 and verse 45. The scene has shifted here. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, right? So now it's a discussion about why they didn't arrest Jesus, and Nicodemus comes into play, and they accuse him of being backwards and from Galilee, and all of that takes place at a different location. So when you skip over 753 to 811 and you get to chapter 8 and verse 12, it says again, because it's connecting us back to his statement on being the living water. So John wants us to read this statement in verse 12 with the statement in chapter 7 regarding him being the living, living water. What was the context of that statement? Both of them take place on the last day of the feast. So Jesus tells everyone he's the the living water, they should come to him. And then he goes right back again and says these words in chapter 8 and verse 12. Let's read the whole verse. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Feast of Booths, this second Jewish festival, one of the biggest, if not the biggest at this time, lasts seven days. And there's even an eighth day when they tear down the booths and they offer sacrifices. But during this whole festival, beginning on the very first day, there were four giant lampstands that were set up in the court of the temple. And on the first day, they were lit up and they gave a massive amount of light, which would have been unusual during that time because things were so dark and they didn't have electricity and they didn't have street lights. I want to read you an explanation of this festival and what happens from a commentator because I think it conveys it so clearly that I want you to hear his words as he puts this together. I'll read it to you. Here's a, he begins it with a quote. He who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. This extravagant claim, what he just quoted, stands just before the description of the lighting of the four huge lamps in the temple's court of women and of the exuberant celebration that took place under their light. Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose and some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. With the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. In this context, Jesus declares to the people, I am the light of the world. And there can be no doubt that when he says this phrase publicly in the temple on the last day of this celebration, that he is offering himself as the light, which is the hope and the fulfillment of this festival and celebration. Think about the progression of what has happened in the Gospel of John in relationship to the book of Exodus, right? Here we go. 
Jesus came as the Passover lamb, which John the Baptist declared. He is offered for sins and to deliver his people from bondage. Once the people are free from bondage, Jesus leads them through the water. He walks on the water to his disciples, and then he leads them into the wilderness where he provides bread for 5,000, manna from heaven, and then he proclaims that he is the living water, water from the rock given to the people, and the water is the Holy Spirit, which will sustain them as they journey through the wilderness and give them spiritual life. While they're in the wilderness, he himself provides shelter for them, just like Israel found shelter in their booths, tents, or tabernacles. And he leads them through the wilderness with a pillar of fire that lights the way during the night. In other words, all of this in the Gospel of John, points back to God's greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament and says that all of this finds its meaning and its fulfillment in Jesus, and he will save in the same way, but to a much, much, much greater extent. So Jesus is speaking these words in light of the Exodus, in light of the Feast of Tabernacles, but that's not only where he's drawing from in the Old Testament. He's also showing them that he fulfills the messianic expectations of the prophets. So later in the Old Testament, the prophets begin to look ahead and think as Israel's in exile, God is going to return to his people and he's going to set things right. And he's going to inaugurate a new covenant and save us, our people. And in the book of Isaiah, this is predicted as being God's servant And he will come and he'll bring salvation and he'll bring healing. And he is described as bringing light. Isaiah 42. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you the servant in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, another servant song. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says... Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Jesus pulls all of this Old Testament background into this statement that is so rich and pregnant and full of meaning when he says, I am the light of the world. But that's not all he says. There are massive implications for this reality that he is the light of the world. Look at verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. If you are walking along a dark pathway in the woods at night and you don't have a flashlight, but you're walking with someone 
who is a step or two ahead of you, who has a flashlight or a lamp, you have to follow that person to be able to see. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. I light the way. I give direction. I give God's revelation. And in order to see, you have to follow me. John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. How do we follow Jesus? Well, that's the whole message of the Gospel of John. We see the pathway that he has set before us through his person and through his work, and we listen to his word. We hear what the scriptures say, and we believe on them. We believe in him, and we act as if they are true. What are the implications if Jesus is who he claims to be, and it shapes and forms and reforms the way we live? Now, verse 12, I think, we spent so much time here because it sets the the foundation for the rest of the chapter. Jesus is the light of the world, and once you begin to understand that he's the light of the world, now you see that he will shine light and revelation into all of these other areas, and things will become clear. There will be truths that we learn from his light things that maybe we couldn't see before, but that now are abundantly clear to us because he has made them clear. And so what does he show us through his coming, his person and his work that you and I have to now believe on and act on? The first one of those is what I gave you. It's the knowledge of the Father. We see God more clearly now. We see who he truly is because Jesus comes as the light. We saw this back in the opening chapter of John, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In light of that, let me walk you through this conversation that ensues in verses 13 to 19 and lead you up to the point where Jesus states in verse 19 that if you knew me, you would know my Father also. This is one of the things that he reveals through his coming as the light. So he makes this statement in verse 12, and the Pharisees respond in verse 13. Look there. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They know he's claiming something significant, and I think here they're referring back to what he said in chapter 7 about being living water and offering living water. But they argue with him that they can't believe him because he's talking about himself. He's bearing witness about himself. So how can they believe that what he says is true? Jesus responds to them in verse 14 that it's because of who he is If God speaks about himself, you believe him. It's because of who he is, because of where he has come from, with God, was God, and it's because of where he is going. He's returning to exaltation and glory with the Father that they can believe his testimony. Look at verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Then he makes it abundantly clear that there is a distinction between their criteria for assessing his truth claims and his criteria. 
Theirs is worldly. Look at verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And his point here is that he's not judging according to the flesh and according to their criteria. Instead, he's judging according to God's criteria. Look at verses 16 through 18. Uh, 16. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Essentially, Jesus says, you want two human witnesses to prove something? I'll give you two divine witnesses to prove something. And then verse 19 is the whole point, and this is what Jesus drives them to. Here is what Jesus as the light reveals. Verse 19, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. As the light, he reveals the father to us. John 14, 7, Jesus says to his disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. And speaking to his disciples, from now on, you do know him. And have seen him. Why from now on? Because Jesus has come and has revealed him. Now, if you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of John, let's be honest. This is not the first time that we've gone over this territory. Over and over again, John has given us stories. He has selected incidents from the life of Jesus that make this point that Jesus reveals the Father to us. I think there's a reason for that. The reason that John spends so much time repeating these ideas and going back to these ideas and writing these stories down where Jesus makes the same point, where he affirms his relationship with the Father, that he is one with the Father. And when you see him, you see the Father. The reason that he goes back to this over and over again is because it is of massive significance. It's so important. And sometimes it seems kind of disconnected to us, to our daily life now. We're like, well, yeah, sure. You see Jesus, you see the Father. But think about what is happening here. Think about this story. God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke everything into existence, the only true God, the one who stands above everything else and for whom everything else exists, that God has come in human flesh. He initiated and came to us, why? To reveal himself to us so that we could know him, so that we could come into a relationship with him. He turned the light on so we could see, and so we could see him, so we wouldn't walk in darkness. So now we know his character. We know him as a father father who cares for what he has created. And what this tells us is the most important thing that you can do with your life, which 
Your life, every breath you take, every moment has been given to you as a gift from God. Your heart is beating right now because God, the creator of heaven and earth, is sustaining you this moment. The greatest thing you can do with your life, the most just, the most rational, the best use of your breath and your life is to know him and to honor and worship him. And he made that possible. He didn't just fling us out there and leave us wandering in darkness. He made that possible. And through Jesus... He has invited you and I into a relationship with him. God is not an optional part of life. Knowing him is not something to be sprinkled in for a couple of hours on Sunday morning. And you got your God fix and you're good to go and you can get back to the real stuff of life. He is the real stuff of life. He's not a means to material success. He's not a chance at some relationships and some friends at the local church. He is the defining reality of existence. Everything relates to him. He's the engine. He's the heart. He's the power plant. I don't know what metaphor will get to you. Pick whichever one you want this morning. Make up your own. But I just want you to see that John goes back to this over and over again because the God of the universe has revealed himself to us through Jesus. And we have access to him because the light has come and the light is now on. Jesus is offering to these people created by God the chance to know their creator. And they're rejecting him outright. Over and over again, they're continuing to choose darkness because they love their sin and their deeds are evil. And I think by doing this over and over again, John is saying, don't make this same mistake regarding Jesus. The light is clear. The light has come. Don't make the same mistake that the Pharisees and others made. Look at John's comment here as he finishes. Something momentous has been said. Look at verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. That brings us to our second blessing. We have the knowledge of the Father, which is much bigger than just an abstract theological statement. Secondly, we have the reality of sin. And judgment. We see this now through the light. Look at verse 21. So he said to them again, there's a certain graciousness to this, right? Again and again and again. He continues to speak the truth to people who are rejecting him. Verse 21. He said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Obviously, Jesus is talking about his death here. And interestingly, when he says, you will seek me, I think what he means is they are going to continue to look for the Messiah. It's not that they're necessarily going to come after Jesus, but after he dies, they're going to continue to look for the Messiah. They're going to turn all these other places to make sense of the Old Testament scriptures and of light and of life. But tragically, they're not going to find the Messiah. Why? Because he's already come. 
And he's already gone back to the Father. And that's where he's going, to return to the presence of the Father. I mean, that's what, he's, that's what he means here. Where I am going, you cannot come. He's going into the presence of the Father, and they can't have access to the Father. Why? Because they will die in their sin. Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. They realize he's talking about his death. But as we've seen throughout this gospel, there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinterpretation, some of it quite willful going on, and that's what happens here. And Jesus responds, verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. They're in their sin, and so their perspective has been so shaped by their sin and by the world, by the flesh, that their eyes are blind. They cannot see the light that has come from the Father. So Jesus, again in verse 24, look here. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And this is what the light of the revelation that Jesus brings to us has given us. Here's what we know for sure, right? Here's what we see clearly because Jesus has come. Every human being will die in their sin, in their rebellion against their creator. This is how, this is the pathway, the trajectory that you and I come into the world on in darkness. It's where we're headed. There's no getting around this unless a certain condition is met. Verse 24, what's the condition that he gives? I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus takes these words here from Isaiah chapter 43. When he says, I am he, he could be referring to a lot of places in the Old Testament, but I think specifically he's taking it from Isaiah 43 which is another one of these songs, servant songs. You're my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. So you see what Jesus has done here? In the first part of this, when he says, I'm the light of the world, he's saying, I'm the servant. I'm the servant whom God sends to redeem. And then when he quotes this here, he says, not only am I the servant who comes to redeem, but I'm God. I'm the God who creates everything. And the God who will save his people. He is both at the same time. It's crazy that people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's exactly what he's doing here. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. And that's the belief that must be there. It has to be there for people to be brought from dead in their sins to the Father's presence. 
It's what we see clearly. There is sin, there is judgment, but there's also a pathway to life. When Bethany and I served in California for a number of years with a youth group out there, high school students, one of the things we did a couple of summers is we took a a summer camp trip. It was a big church, and I guess because it was a big church, we did not do anything small. And so we drove these tour buses from Los Angeles to northwestern New Mexico for a summer camp out there. It was a huge, huge deal. It was a week long, and it was very fun, but very tiring. One of the summers that we did this, we decided that after leaving at 9 o'clock at night on Friday night after a week of camp, which nobody sleeps at camp, right? After leaving at 9 o'clock at night, we would drive all the way through the night, and it would be really cool if we could stop at the Grand Canyon on the way back and have breakfast and watch the sunrise over the Grand Canyon. Well, Bethany and I happened to be in a van carrying some sound equipment, and so we were able to get out ahead of the big buses with all the kids in them, and we were, with a few other adults, were able to get to the Grand Canyon earlier than everyone else. And we got there between 4 and 5 a.m., and it was still very, very, very dark. No city lights nearby. It was very, very dark at the south rim of the canyon. And I'll never forget, we got out and walked to the edge of the canyon. And it's hard to put into words, but there's this sensation when you're standing there in the dark, not getting too close to the edge, but there's, because you don't know exactly where it is, but there's this sensation, this sort of overwhelming feeling of this expanse of space in front of you. And you, you know that it's there. You just feel how big it is and how open it was. And because of that, we didn't get too close because it was dark. And even a flashlight couldn't help us to see really that well and how close we were getting to the edge of the canyon. But when the sun rose in the morning, now we could sit close to the edge. We could sit around with everybody else and we could eat breakfast and we sang worship songs together. The light revealed the danger in front of us and kept us from that danger. And that's exactly what the light that Jesus brings does for us. Now we see that we will die in our sins and through his light we see the condition, the requirement, the belief that is necessary in order to enter into the presence of the Father. The light has come and the pathway is right in front of you. It's abundantly clear. Believe that he is God. Lastly, the identity of the Son is the third blessing. This is in verses 25 to 30. Obviously, Jesus' words in verse 24 struck a chord. They seem to know that he's claiming something from the Old Testament because look what they say in verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Who are you claiming to be? Jesus responds, verse 25, Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. And he's been telling them both verbally and through his works, through the signs. Everything about his ministry so far has communicated this reality, has shown the light of who he is to them. The light has come. And he says, I have more things. I have more light to bring. Look at 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. 
but they're not seeing. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus points them to the moment when his identity will shine through most clearly. Verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is the moment when he's lifted up on the cross. John 3.14 pointed to this. When we will see clearly that he always does what pleases the Father. That he has eternally been the Father, been with the Father, and one with the Father. We will see all of that clearly. And this will be the moment that his enemies think they've won. And it will be the moment that through his humiliation through his obedience and going to the cross, he will be exalted and seen for who he truly is. So many passages point to this. At the beginning of Isaiah 53, if you go back three verses into Isaiah 52, this is where that song really starts, and this is the first thing that is said. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then Isaiah 53 goes on to explain that it is through his being crushed for our iniquities that he will be exalted. Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord is the name that they're talking about here, not Jesus Christ. It's Lord. That's the name that he has to the glory of God the Father. And lastly, Revelation 5, verses 9 through 13. In the throne room of heaven, and they sang a new song. Notice here, they praise him for, they exalt him for his humiliation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So this morning, I want you to think of your life like an Israelite on the journey from slavery in Egypt toward the heavenly promised land. God has provided light for you to see and to follow. And I want you to think of these three blessings that we've looked at as towering lampstands like they had at the Feast of Booths that illuminate your path and show you how to make sense of everything else that happens. We have knowledge of the Father, the reality of sin and judgment, and we know the identity of the Son through his death and humiliation and exaltation. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time together. I pray that you would use your words, your scripture, you would pierce and penetrate our hearts, open our blind eyes, and help us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen.